All right, school is in session. So take your seats and turn up the volume. volume. It's time for the smartest fishing show on the internet. This is the show that dives into everything fishing from tactics and gear to policy and product. Here he is, the fishing professor, Professor Sid Dobrin. So stick around, you might learn something. Give me the beat, boys, to free my soul. I want to get lost in rock and roll and drift away. Well, I just want to drift away, sit on my boat with the engine off, and let the current take me where it may. But where it's taking me today is to the Rodcast, so welcome aboard. I am Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor, and we've got another great episode this week, an episode that features an interview not only with one of the most prolific and most important fishing writers of the last 50 years, but a fishing writer who has been a tremendous influence and how I think about fishing and writing. I am honored to have Mr. John Garrick in the Inshore Offshore Digital Studio today. And then after I talk with Mr. Garrick, I'm going to celebrate having met one of my literary heroes by pouring a bit of Baker's seven-year single-barrel Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey. And then I'll get a bit blustery and count down my top 10 aerators for bait buckets. Hey, you know, I just heard about these three priests that were out fishing in a boat when they ran out of bait. The first priest got up and walked across the water to get more bait. And then after about two hours, they ran out of bait again. And the second priest said he'd get some more bait. And he got up and he walked across the water. Now, after a few more hours of fishing, once again, they ran out of bait. Sounds like poor planning. We should have Boy Scouts and not priests. But after a few more hours, they ran out of bait again. And the third priest said he would go get more bait. So he stepped out of the boat and went straight to the bottom. The first priest turned to the second priest and said, should we have told him where the rocks were? Thank you. I am here all week. In the meantime, let's get casting. Okay, my listening crew, we have got a great conversation in store for you today. It's a conversation that I have to admit I've been wanting to have for more than 35 years now. I am thrilled to welcome to the Rodcast, Mr. John Garrick not just one of the premier fishing writers of our time, but also, in my humble opinion, one of the best writers in the long history of fishing literature. Mr. Garrick is the author of more than 25 books about trout and trout fishing and fly fishing. Four of these are co-written with Premier Fly Tire, AK Best, and they are how-to books, or what I referred to in other discussions about books as instructional books. But the others, the 20 plus others, are what we think of as devotional books, books dedicated to the storytelling and commitment to the art and culture of fly fishing. And it would be no stretch to say that Mr. Garrick's writing has probably had more impact on the culture of fishing, certainly trout fishing, certainly fly fishing, yes, but I would say all recreational fishing than just about any other writer out there. In addition, his books and his writing have appeared in Gray's Sporting Journal, Field and Stream, and Fly Rod and Reel. He also writes columns for the Longmont Daily Times Call, the Redstone Review, and the New York Times. And in 1994, the U.S. Federation of Fly Fishers awarded Mr. Garrick the Roderick Haig Brown Award. And this award recognizes a fly fishing author whose work embodies the philosophy and spirit of Roderick Haig Brown, particularly a respect for the ethics and traditions of fly fishing and an understanding of rivers, the inhabitants, and their environments. And if you're interested in a sampling of his magazine articles, particularly the field and stream pieces, be sure to check out his collection, At the Grave of the Unknown Fisherman, which brings 20 of his magazine essays together in one volume. 
Now, Mr. Garrick has a new book coming out in the next few weeks called All the Time in the World, which we are certainly going to discuss today, since that's what his publicist asked me to do. But before I get to that, I have to tell a quick story as to why having Mr. Garrick on the broadcast really does mean so much to me. Back in the mid-1980s, so more than 35 years ago, when I finished high school, I received several bookstore gift cards for graduation presents, and I planned to use every one of them to buy as many fishing books as I could. One of those books was Garek's Trout Bum. Not his first book, but the first of his that I encountered. I was so taken by that book that I decided I wanted to spend as much of my life reading and writing about fishing as I could, and more important, I wanted to learn to tell fishing stories the way that Garrick did in Trout Bum. I wanted to be the Garrick of saltwater. I even started referring to myself as a blue water bum. I even learned to fly fish and made trips out west to trout fish, and for those of you who know Garrick's work, just saying that probably already puts me in a class of fly angler that Garrick bemoans often enough that I already know where he'd place me in the fly fishing world. I have over the years read every book he has published, usually multiple times. I've taught a few of them in my classes, and to say that John Garrick is one of my literary heroes would be shortchanging the effect his writing has had on me and the fishing literary world, not to mention on the sport and culture of fly fishing. So it was with true humility and honor that I welcome Mr. John Garrick to the Rodcast. Mr. Garrick, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Rodcast. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, just that introduction was worth it. <laughs> well, well, then we'll just end it here and uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll go with the win on that. Um, so I like to start each episode of the Rodcast with origin story questions. And even though many of your readers have over the years pieced together your origin story from your books, Many of my listeners probably don't know those stories, so I was wondering if you could tell us first how fishing became part of your life, and then how and why you translated that love of fishing into the career you've had. Well, that's a big question. Um, I, I've been fishing since I can remember. Um, I think we were going through a family album one time, and we found what was probably a picture of my first fish, tiny little bullhead that I'm holding up. Uh, I've got a, I've got a huge cane rod and, um, with a, with a line on it that could land a tarpon. And I've got this tiny little bullhead and we figured that would, I would have been four years old at the, at the time. So I've, I've sort of fished all my life. Um, I've always been a reader. I was I was always interested in stories and how how they were told and who told them. Um, there's probably a moment when it occurred to me. You know, my mother used to read to me when I was a kid. This was we we had a television, I think, but this was this was back in the old days when mothers read to their kids. And it finally occurred to me that someone had written this. Some actual human being like me had written this. And that just always fascinated me. And um, so I, I sort of very gradually decided I wanted to be a writer and was pursuing that uh, during and after college. Um, Back in the days when I would have liked the sound of the term serious writer. And I was also fly fishing 
And I don't know, I just, one day I just put it together. I was reading, I think, Fly Fisherman magazine. And I thought, you know, this is not exactly war and peace. A guy could do this. And I understand they pay people for this. I, I published a little poetry and stuff like that. I've never been paid. So I wrote a fishing story and sold it for what at the time was probably a month's pay at the kind of jobs I was working. And, um, you know, every writer wants encouragement and there's no encouragement like a check. So, and then, you know, other things happened. Um, I discovered Hemingway. I discovered Tom McGuane, um, Russ Chatham, other people writing about fishing. And it occurred to me, well, this can be done as well as any kind of writing. It's not, you know, it doesn't have to be that kind of dumbed down 1950s vintage field and stream stuff. It can actually be, you can write intelligently about fishing. And um, I don't know, it just kind of happened. It just kind of happened. Well, let me pick up on that then, and let's let's talk about fishing and writing, and forgive me for the length of this prompt, but I hope you'll bear with me to see the point of this. So William Humphrey in his book, My Moby Dick, tells us that there are two kinds of fishing books, the instructional and the devotional. The former is written by fishermen who write, the latter by writers who fish. Now, in your book, No Shortage of Good Days, you take on the topic of writing about fishing and you say that writing is either a craft or an art, depending on how it goes on any given day. And although it's done in temperamental solitude, it's still an attempt at communication. So with any luck, the finished product has to be have a public face. And then you turn around and write, fishing is an idle pastime, a spot, an observance, or a way of life, depending on who does it. It could be a metaphor for something larger or more likely just what happens to be. But whatever it is, it's private. That's an interesting distinction to make between writing as public and fishing as private. So I want to ask you a question that my father asked me many years ago and that I admit I use as an anecdote in my first fishing book, but that I think is an interesting question. He asked me, why is it that everyone who can hold a rod in one hand and a pen in the other feels obligated to write a book about what the rod hand is doing? So I ask you, what is it about fishing that makes so many of us want to write about fishing to make that private public? Well, I think I'd like your dad. <laughs> uh, it's a great way to ask the question. Um, I think it's probably just because it's, uh, it's one of the great uncomplicated joys of our lives. And if we're the kind of people who want to write, we just want to share that. Try and share it, try and get it through to people. It's, um, you know, it's pretty hard to get fishing through to people who don't fish. I mean, they'll, you can say whatever you say and they'll likely answer, yeah, but how can you just stand out there all day? So it's, I don't know, there's a, there's a lot to it. There's a lot of subtleties. And um, it's just interesting to try and, to try and get those across. 
I, I should point out too that you have made clear a few times that you don't think of yourself as a professional fly fisherman, but as a professional writer who happens to write about fly fishing. Right. So one of the characteristics of your writing is the ways in which you use aphorisms. And I've had this weird fantasy of going back through all of your books and articles and putting together a collection of Dirac aphorisms, the way that we see all those greatest fishing quote books and they gather quotes from other writers. But I like one that's just your words. What is it about the aphorism that works so well for you? And do you plan them to work that way or do they just come out and you're thinking and writing because that's how you think and write? I don't plan them, but... Um... I tend to like aphorisms because they get to the point without being too wordy. The good ones, there's bad ones too, of course, but if it's successful, again, it's like a good metaphor. A good metaphor lights up the subject in, in a way that people can, can recognize and appreciate, and a bad one doesn't, and you have to know the difference. I think it's more like, I think they just kind of fall out of the writing and I'm smart enough to recognize them when I see a good one. Well, I think they're fantastic. Like I said, I just wish I had a long list of them somewhere so I could point them to, point my kids to them. Hey, read this. So, so going back to Humphrey's taxonomy of instructional and devotional, most of your books are clearly in that devotional realm of things, but you do have some instructional books too. Mm -hmm. uh, fly fishing small streams, for example, leans more toward instructional, though it has its devotional moments. But I want to ask about the instructional for a minute. So in Trout Bum, you write that you took up fly fishing long enough ago that you don't remember exactly when it was, but that you had a novice's ready-made fascination with all the mysterious gears and gadget. In fact, you write, and this is a quote, was probably the exotic tackle and accoutrements that first attracted me to the sport. So given that, I want to ask you about one of your more technical instructional books about gear, Fishing Bamboo. This is a book that focuses your overall passion for fly fishing into a concentrated look at the split bamboo rod. And I have to admit that when I read Kirk Wallace's uh, The Feather Thief, I don't know if you know this book, but I was reminded of the level of expertise and nuance and passion in your project in Fishing Bamboo, without the criminal aspects of Feather Thief, by the way. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if you could speak about your adoration of bamboo and what prompted you to write Fishing Bamboo, which probably had a smaller target audience than most of your other books. Well, yeah, it did. Um, I was, that was kind of a labor of love. A, a lot of people had just asked me, what is about, what is it about bamboo? And I thought I would, um, this is my cat, by the way. <laughs> Um, I thought I would write a story, a, a, an essay about what it is about bamboo. And actually, uh, Ernie Schwiebert had done that years before with a story in some magazine called The Alchemy of Bamboo. And it just got away from me and became a book because I realized I had to talk about the old historic makers and I had to talk about how they de were developed and um, and a couple of people knew I was working on this and Nick Lyons called me up and, and said um, 
he he was interested in looking at it. Maybe he'd publish it. And um, God, I remember I said, I don't know how many people are going to be interested in a book about bamboo rods. Um, and he said, well, uh, there aren't many people who are going to pay $1,500 for a bamboo rod. But he said, there's plenty of people who will pay $20 for a book. <laughs> that explains why other people would pay $1,500. And so that's kind of how it got published. Um, it just always fascinated me that when I first started fly fishing, there was, there was basically fiberglass and bamboo. And everybody said bamboo was, was the best. And so I decided I wanted to try it. And you could, in those days, it really wasn't that hard to find Grangers, Phillipsons, Heddens, stuff like that, um, what they what they call production rods, at uh, yard sales for $30, $40. And um, so I picked some up and I just, I just liked them. Uh, and I liked the way they cast, I liked the way they felt, and I liked the idea that they were traditional they were handmade to some degree some more than others um i don't know it, I, it was no big philosophical position in there i just liked him and and enough other people liked him and um so it's you know it was kind of it, it actually once graphite came out it became this odd little subculture and I was all, I've always been attracted to odd little subcultures. And I mean, when I started fly fishing, fly fishing itself was a sporting backwater. It wasn't, it was something your grandpa used to do. It, it wasn't everybody spin fish. Well, I guess because of that subculture though, I mean, that does sort of push the rod, the bamboo rod into the philosophical in some ways too. And, Let's face it, you know, fly fishing is bound up with those kinds of philosophical approaches to things, you know, whether it, even within bamboo, right, the American approach versus the English approach to bamboo rods, uh, or, you know, even conversations we have about things like native versus stock trout, mm -hmm. um, you know, those are all have all become part of the philosophy of fly fishing. Um, how much of that do you think is because people read your writing about it? Oh, I don't know. I, I I suspect it's there, and I just write about it. I I don't I don't really feel like I influence things that much. I feel like it's it's out there. I I find it. I I write about it, and in such a way that when it's successful, uh, people appreciate it, and when it's not successful, I'm. I try to be smart enough to never let it see the light of day. Uh, do you happen to know Sam Snyder's book, Backcast, The Global History of Fly Fishing and Conservation? I don't. Sam was one of my PhD students, and he wrote his dissertation about whether or not fly fishing is a religion. And given what you just said, do you think that fly fishing and its disciples are a kind of religion? I mean, we've got philosophies and such. Yeah, I, I think some people see it that way. Um, I, I don't. 
uh, I think it's, uh, but you know, I mean, if, if you like, if you like that idea, it can certainly be a religion. Um, but I don't, I've never seen it that way. I just see it as a, as a thing people do that takes them into beautiful places and, and it's fun and it's interesting. And, um, like I say, it's one of the few things we do, the value of which we don't question. And that's, that's always fascinated me. It's like, you know, if you ask an investment banker, what's so interesting about money, he'll just look at you. It's, it's, you know, it's, it seems obvious to him and fishermen are like, that. it seems obvious that fishing is interesting. And, and if you don't think it is, you don't have anything more to say to that person. Yeah. And I guess that's part of what sort of defines various fishing cultures too, right? Are those distinctions between what we find interesting and what others find interesting? I remember you wrote about, and I want to say it was in Dances with Trout, that you only ever entered one fishing tournament back in the 90s. And, you know, competition has become such a huge part of fishing culture, but it's not part of how you think about fishing. Could you talk about competition and fishing? Yeah, um, I, I do remember that, that contest. Uh, yeah, it just seems to me it's maybe one of the few things we do that by nature isn't competitive. Um, I mean, it's not really about body counts. It's not about scores. Uh, I don't know what to, I don't know what to say to people who always just go back to how many they caught and how big they were. Um, as a, as a writer, I'm, I'm looking at the trees and the birds and talking to the guides and, uh, uh, you know, eating, eating local food, eating pasties up in Michigan and, um, which, which they say it's not a, it's not a true no, pasties, uh, kind of meat pie. They say it's not, it's not right if it doesn't have rutabagas in it. And that's, I don't know, that's what interests me about it. Um, the, it's nice to catch them. I mean, you always try to catch a few fish, but, and sometimes you, you try to catch a big one, but I, I just don't see the competitive aspect. And, and actually, I think it's nice to have something you do that isn't competitive. I don't like, I don't like writing competitions for the same reason. Um, if, if, uh, if you like my books, that doesn't mean I'm better than anyone else. That means maybe you'll look for someone who's writes in the same vein and you'll find Tom McGuane. So, uh, I, I don't know. I just don't see any of it as competitive. I, I have to say that um, my past the experience is limited to the UK. And so now, now you've got me thinking about having to go to Michigan to eat pasties. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I agree that the competition, you know, it, it, particularly as we said a moment ago, you've talked about fishing as a solitary activity. And so, it, you know, the competition seems more internal than it does public. I want to ask one last general philosophical question since we've been talking about philosophy. And since you were a philosophy major, um, 
before we get to the new book, uh, one of my favorite fishing quotes comes from George Orwell's Coming Up for Air. And in it, Orwell writes, is it any use of talking about it, I wonder, the sort of fairy light that fishing and fishing tackle have in a kid's eyes. Some kids feel the same about guns and shooting. Some feel it about motorbikes or airplanes or horses. It's not a thing that you can explain or rationalize. It's merely magic. That quote seems very evocative to me of your writing in even Brook Trout Get the Blues when you say fishing is engrossing because it's so lovely that it's central to everything. We try to be logical, but there's no way around it. We end up believing in whatever we think is beautiful, whether we can prove it makes sense or not. Everyone needs something wonderful in their life that they can't explain and that they might not explain even if they could. That sounds to me a lot like what you were just saying about the reason we write about fishing is trying to explain the unexplainable. And you spend a lot of time explaining that beauty. I was wondering if you might speak to that writerly desire to share that kind of indescribable beauty of fly fishing. Well, somebody said, I wish I could remember who it was, Somebody said good writing is an act of generosity. And we all feel like maybe we should have, we either have something to offer or should have something to offer. And it's probably just as simple as that. It isn't, it isn't that I think I see things other people don't see, but writing, good writing has a way of, lighting it up in ways that maybe wouldn't have happened if people just thought about it themselves. Um, it's why we sit down with, with like-minded people and talk about things. Um, even if we totally agree on everything, you still, you still sort of get these, you sort of, sort of get these ideas that are, you know, recognizable to you and very much like ideas you have, but they're, they're useful. It's useful to hear that. Um, I don't know. I, you know, I'm an instinctive writer. I don't really sit around thinking about what I'm doing. I, I think more about how I can do it better. So with that in mind, let's switch the conversation to the new book, All the Time in the World, which is due out soon from Simon & Schuster. And first, let me say congratulations. It is absolutely magnificent. Okay. And I want to, given what you just said, I want to start generically with that all too familiar question then. So what is it you did want to accomplish with this last book? Well, I mean, these are, all my books are autobiographical. Um, we were my editor at Simon Schuster and I, Bob Bender, were going back and forth. I can't remember which book it was. We were going back and forth about the title. And he said, well, why don't we just call it Let's Talk More About Me, Volume 17. <laughs> um, I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm trying to explain myself to people. Maybe it's, maybe it's all... Um, you know, I remember trying to explain myself to my dad and not getting through. And maybe it all goes back to that if you want to get psychological about it. Once again, I just, I, I mean, I'm fascinated with the idea of writing. And so I decided I wanted to do it. And now I'm just concerned with how to do it, not so much why I do it. 
So given that too, one of the things that's evident in all of your writing is always this strong sense of place. And there seems to be an undercurrent in all of your books that makes the place as important as the action, as Absolutely. important as the fishing. So a lot of your books tell the stories of your travels around the world to fish. And you talk about your writing as travel writing sometimes. And I remember, and I forget which book it was in, the essay about your first time in Alaska and how that paired up with essays later in later books about your further adventures in Alaska. Mm -hmm. But in this new book, you have to resituate place because a lot of the events of the book take place during the COVID years. And right. so your focus is more on the intimacy of home waters than on travel. Could you talk about how these homebound experiences affected your thinking about place and about fishing more familiar waters and how you've had to rethink the idea of travel writing? Well, um, I don't know that I did rethink the idea of travel writing. Um, you know, I mean, you can get on a plane and fly to Alaska or you can get in a truck and drive 20 minutes up the road and, and fish and you're, you're traveling both ways. Um, so it's, I, I don't feel like it has to be exotic travel to be travel writing. And each of these little creeks around here that I fish and some of the big rivers too, they're all unique. They're all in the same you know, couple of counties, but each one's unique. The, the stream streams themselves have different personalities and the surroundings are different. And some of them are, can get crowded. Uh, some of them rarely do. And um, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't really feel like I rethought much. I just didn't travel as much as I, you know, earlier in the book, there's, I, I think I was in, I was in Alaska, Montana, Minnesota, um, and then COVID hit. And then towards the end, I'm, I'm actually back in Montana traveling again. And, um, and it was just, it was just interesting to me. I mean, whatever's, whatever is happening in front of me at the moment seems like story material. Um, and so that's, that gets into the stories. Uh, try, you know, I get political occasionally. I try to stay away from it. But it's it's unavoidable. Um, it, the interesting part of not being able to travel any distance was was rediscovering stuff that I'd been fishing for forty years sometimes and and had kind of neglected and um, you know it's there's something about having deep, deep history with some of these creeks. Um, some of them, I remember at one point in here, I don't remember which essay it is, but you get into, well, you know, it seems like it isn't as good as it was 40 years ago, but is that true? Or did I have a, <clears throat> excuse me, did I have a, an inflated idea of what it was like 40 years ago. Maybe it's the same. And, you know, older guys, once you, once you've been fishing for a long time, it's like the old days were always better than now. And that's, that's been an article of fact among fishermen for as long as I can remember. I have a 
I don't know if you know George Pomeromo. He does a lot of saltwater fishing writing, but he uh, once told me that we have to always remember that today is always going to be somebody else's good old days. Yeah, right. Well, yeah, today is, is your good old days. So you brought two things up just now that I want to touch on. The first is going to be the easy one. You mentioned taking the truck uh, around to your creeks, but I got to ask, how's the Jeep? We haven't seen the Jeep in a while. The Jeep's fine. Um, I, um, I, haven't, I haven't used it in a while, but it's winter. There's nowhere to go, nowhere to go in it. Um, yeah, the Jeep's fine. And um, I'll be using it uh, next year once the, well, actually later this year. We've had a snowy year. And, and uh, so it's probably going to be July before some of those high altitude creeks um, open up and uh, and you know the some of the forest service roads they have to um, you know we lose trees and uh, there's erosion and sometimes the forest service crews have to get up there and fix the road before they'll reopen it and uh, so by July I'll be up there banging around in the jeep I'm jealous of that too. But um, so you mentioned this a second ago, and I want to bring it up because I wanted to ask you about it. Um, in all the time in the world, you're a bit more political than you've been in most of your work. You comment about climate change, about COVID, and other contemporary issues like weed legalization that we tend to think of as political. What was it about the time or the book that encouraged you to make these kinds of position statements that you haven't made before? Well, I just actually news to me that there's more position statements in the book than there's usually are. Um, I don't know what was on my mind. It was, it was in my face. Um, climate change is, uh, I mean, we've known about it for 30 or 40 years and uh, we always thought it was going to be way out in the future sometime. My friend Ed Engel once said, well, I thought I'd be dead by the time the shit hit the fan, but no such luck. Um, all of a sudden it's here and we're seeing it. Um, we've had terrible wildfires out here. We've had to evacuate a couple of times. And so, you know, as, as summer approaches, you're just going, well, is this the year we burn up or, or what? And that's all directly attributable to climate change. It's hotter, it's drier, and people are still stupid and clumsy with uh, with fires out in the world. So um, I don't know. I, I I write about what's happening in front of me, and that's that apparently is something that's happening in front of me. Weed legalization was uh, oh, so you know, it was a great thing. It's it's long overdue. Um, there was a time I'd have been happier. I don't smoke anymore and haven't for a long time. So uh, I wasn't as delighted as I might have been once back in the 70s and 80s. But <clears throat> I'm just really in favor of not locking people up for harmless activities. And, and I, I will. You know, they, they, there were people who predicted that. Colorado would become the night of the living dead and zombies would be wandering the streets and none of that happened. 
Absolutely not. I mean, every once in a while you run into somebody that's cooked, but that happened before. Now it's I, legal. Well, and I will clarify, you only made one or two allusions to that. It wasn't like you got into a deep political conversation about it. No, but, no. but So there is so much great writing and so many great stories in all the time in the world. But I want to get you to talk about one of the chapters for me that just stands out, not just in the book itself, but really in the overall history of fly fishing writing. And that's the third chapter, which is called Dry Flies. And it may be the best thing ever written about dry fly fishing. And it bends the technical, blends the technical with the narrative in an absolutely remarkable way. And given what you do in good flies, favorite trout patterns, and how they got that way, it's tough to top those discussions of flies. But dry flies, chapter three, seems to me to be a crescendo in your writing. Could you talk about that chapter? And given what you've already said about fly fishing and all that, why dry flies earn such reverence and why you put such reverence into that chapter? Well, I don't think I put any more reverence into that chapter than I do any of the others. Maybe it was more successful than some of the others. Um, I just, and I don't remember if it was in that chapter or not, but um, I think dry flies are why fly fishing was invented. Um, who was it? The who's the there was a, a a Greek or a Roman who was writing about these these fishermen who would they that there were there were bugs on the surface the fish were eating and the yeah you know, they couldn't they couldn't use the bugs as bait so they tied fur and feathers on a hook and and caught the fish that way and it was entirely practical it was just people trying to get something to eat but i think that i think dry flies were why fly fishing was invented and there's something about the visualness of it the, the you see everything and as opposed to you know the exact opposite of dry fly fishing is lowering a, a baited hook 20 feet down in the water until the bobber starts bumping. Um, I just, I think there's something fascinating about seeing everything happen. You can often see the fish, you always see the take. Um, and I think that's just, and, and the flies themselves are, are gorgeous. Um, it can be. And, uh, and it's just the idea that you you see it all happening right in front of you. I think the writer you were referring to, which you talk about in that chapter, was Claudius Alanius. Mm -hmm. So I don't remember if it was unique to all the time in the world or if it's a thread that's been emerging over several of your books. Could you talk? I'm very intrigued by this. I have to tell you, can you talk about the difference between missing a fish and losing a fish? Well, I'm not, I, I honestly don't remember what I said about that, but um, there, was a, there was a great quote from uh, Isaac Walton who said, uh, you can't lose something you never had. So. Right. And that, that to me is the fascinating part is at which point 
do we have the fish? And uh, that, that to me is the interesting question. Yeah. Well, I, I think you have the fish when it's in the net or you've got your hands on it. Um, but yeah, you can, I mean, you can lose it at any, at any moment after the strike. And uh, I've lost fish in every conceivable way. And I, it seems to me, I, I invent new ways to do it all the time. So there's one other question like that, that I want to ask you. Um, and I'm just kind of curious here, but given everything you write about, tell me about the difference between a friend and a fishing friend. Well, um, a fishing friend is, is someone you share fishing with. And, um, believe it or not, I have a few friends who don't fish and, um, I don't we know. call that charity work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, the charity's often on, you know, on their part instead of mine, but, uh, and it's, uh, you can get too wound up in what you do. I think it's good to be taken out of, taken out of, uh, taken out of your own little bailiwick, but uh, a friend of mine who since died, Peter Molnar, he's a, a, a world famous um, geologist. And uh, he was uh, asked by, he won a thing called the Crawford Prize, which is um, awarded by the Nobel Committee for sciences that didn't exist when the Nobel Prizes were established. Huge deal. And uh, Oxford University Press asked him to uh, write a book on his theories. And I said, what are you going to call it? And he said, I'm thinking of calling it Sex, Death, and Plate Tectonics. Sounds, sounds so, like a familiar title, doesn't it? <laughs> it's, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that's, that's the kind of thing that... Uh, your non-fishing friends can do for you. They can, they can kind of bring you back to earth. So with that in mind, I have another question about all the time in the world, but I don't know if it's a literary question or a personal question. And if it's the latter, I'm not sure if I'm wading into waters where I shouldn't be, but I'm going to ask it because it was just something that stood out for me about the new book, because there's something missing from all the time in the world. And so I have to ask, and if you don't want to answer, I certainly understand, but where is AK? He only appears once in the book and only in an offhanded reference. How have you come to tell stories of Poncho without Lefty? Yeah, well, AK um, is, is pretty old. He's in his late 80s, and he's not fishing, as far as I can tell. And um, we just kind of... Uh, lost track of each other when he stopped fishing. Um, talked to him a few times. He's still flying. Uh, time flies uh, slowly, but he's still doing it. Um, yeah, that was just an age thing. He just he, AK just kind of aged out. We haven't fished together in quite a while now. I'm sorry to hear that. He uh, he's one of those you know, real life characters that you look forward to getting updates on when the new books come out. And so it was something that stood out for me is definitely absent uh, from, from the book. So, yeah. He hasn't, he hasn't been prominent in the last couple actually. Right. right. So as we begin to wrap this up, and this is a conversation that I wish could go on for days and we could have good food and do things like that. 
But I want to ask you, of everything you know about trout and fly fishing, what's the one thing you still wish you could figure out or the many things you wish you could figure out? Well, I still would like to be a better fly caster than I am. Um, I don't, I mean, you all, it, boy, that's a hard one. I mean, there's things I, there's things I'm unable to do every time I go fishing casts. I'm unable to make, um, as I get older, there's waiting. I'm unable to do. There's some places I know about that are now hard for me to get to because they're a long, steep walk from where you park. And so there's, there's that, but I think, I think the, 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 real answer is I'd like to cast better. And, um, you know, someone who's been casting for half a century and maybe I'm, maybe this is as good as I get. Um, but I'm, I'm constantly, almost every time I go fishing, there's a, there's a, uh, a cast I'd like to make that I can't quite. A quick AK best story. I think I wrote this somewhere. Uh, there was a, it was on the frying pan river. There was a fish in an absolutely impossible spot. Nice big fish, rainbow, rising to blue wing olives. And he's just, he's on the far side of the river, long cast. You'd have to mend your line about four different ways to get a six inch drift. And I was standing there looking at him and AK came by and he said, you're going to cast to him? And I said, I can't make that cast. And he said, well, you'll never be able to if you don't start trying. So I, you know, I always try. I always try to do things that are that are beyond me and I know it. And I keep thinking, well, maybe I'll, I don't know, maybe I'll stumble on something. And, and honestly, every once in a while, uh, I pull one off. But the fish has to be, the fish has to be a little on the dumb, gullible side for that to work, but some of them are. Yeah. I think every time I get in those situations, I, uh, I try to pray to the saint of Joan Wolf to give me some sort of power there. Yeah. Yeah. So that brings us to my traditional wrap up question. The thing that I ask of all the guests on the Rodcast, and given everything that you've written over the years and as much as you've shared with us, I'm really intrigued to hear your answer about this because you've shared so many of your experiences my question is, what's your grail fish? What's the bucket list fish that's still out there that you really want to have the experience catching? Oh, well, I don't know. I've, I've, uh, be nice to, it would be nice to crack 50 inches on uh, muskie. I've come close. Um, I've, I've done 48. But, um, you know, there's that there's that 50 inch mark that's I say you shouldn't you should never mount a muskie if it isn't 50 inches long. Uh, that might be one. Um, um, always wanted to, to fish for sea run Arctic char and I, I got to do it once, but I'd like to do it again. Um, that was in the tree river in uh, Nunavut, which used to be part of the. Northwest Territories, and now is the Inuit administered territory up in Canada. 
Um, absolutely beautiful fish. They look like a, in spawning colors, they look like a brook trout in a clown suit. Put a brook trout to shame. Uh, but I, it's not, it's not that. It isn't that there's some, some thing I'm trying to do that's out of reach. I'm just, I just want to keep doing it as long as I can. That to me sounds like the perfect answer and the perfect way to wrap this up. Mr. Garrick, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to talk with me today. This has been such a great honor for me. And I want to thank you for all that I have learned from your writing and all of the time in the world is just fantastic. I wish you great success with it. Thank you, sir, so much for being on the Rodcast today. Well, thank you. It's been fun. Right, my listening crew, I got to say that that was just a thrilling conversation for me. I mean, in all honesty, Mr. Garrick's writing has really influenced not just my own writing, but quite literally the ways in which I think about fishing. So I want to celebrate a bit. And what better way to celebrate than to sit back, pour deep from a good bottle of bourbon and ruminate a bit on that great experience. But, you know, maybe we could also ruminate a bit on the bourbon we're drinking, too. And this week, since I'll be pouring from a bottle of Baker's seven-year single-barrel Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey, that seems like a bottle worth celebrating with and worth meditating upon. Now, this bourbon break is also a bourbon break that might have a sense of closure as well. Since over the last year on the Rodcast, I have reviewed Basil Hayden, Knob Creek, and Booker's bourbon, and Baker's is the fourth bourbon in Jim Beam's small-batch bourbon collection. So bringing Bakers into the bourbon break fold kind of gives me a sense of accomplishment, a sense of completion and closure. Like, I don't know, driving on I-10 from Jacksonville, where it begins or ends, depending on which direction you're traveling, and ends or begins right there at the Santa Monica Pier in Los Angeles. And yeah, as soon as I said that, Dr. Seuss's north-going Zacks and south-going Zacks came ringing back in my thinking, even though we're talking about eastbound and westbound Zacks. Now, I-10, by the way, is the southernmost cross-country highway in the U.S.'s interstate system. It's 2,460.34 miles. It was designed back in 1956, but it wasn't fully completed until 1990. And what does this have to do with bourbon? absolutely nothing other to say don't drink bourbon and drive on i-10 no my point was about accomplishment and so maybe a better analog would be the sense of accomplishment you got back in 1977 when you finally got that mayor mccheese glass at mcdonald's and had the complete set with grimace mayor mccheese captain crook big mac the hamburglar and of course ronald then you had the whole set complete like having Baker's seven-year single-barrel Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey on the bourbon break to complete the full set of four. I'm kind of stoked about this. Major accomplishment in my podcasting life. Oh, and I did check to see how many McDonald's there are along I-10, but I can't find that information. I'm sorry to disappoint. But yes, Baker's seven-year single-barrel Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey is distilled by Jim Beam, which is owned by Bean Suntory. Now, Baker's is named for Baker Beam, Jim Beam's grandnephew. you got to love Baker Beam, aside from having a name that's just pure, rugged, tough. But Baker Beam was a motorcycle-riding, 
hat wearing whiskey making dude. He was known as the rebel of the beam family. And he started working for the family distillery as a night watchman while he was in high school. How one finishes high school when one works in the Jim Beam Distillery is beyond me. I'd be, I'd be at those barrels every waking moment. But Baker Beam took to the family business, and the rumor was that no one knew the operations of the distillery better than Baker Beam. When he retired after 38 years of working at the distillery, and this is a quote from the Baker Bourbon webpage, quote, his cousin, Booker No created Baker's bourbon in his honor, inspired by his passion for bourbon and his maverick nature. Of course, of course, Booker's was named for Booker No too, so it's all in the family all around Beamtown. So when we're talking about Baker's seven-year single-barrel Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey, it's 107-proof bourbon, and each batch is aged for a minimum of seven years, hence the name seven there. It carries a mash bill of 77% corn, 13% rye, and 10% malted barley. Now, the eye of the Baker's seven-year single-barrel Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey is gorgeous. It's a fluid blend of coppery brown, gold, and red, like the red of a mahogany. In fact, the Baker's reminds me of a finely polished hardwood like mahogany when the sunlight plays through it. And the bottle is elegant, distinct, beautiful. The label doesn't dominate the bottle, so you can see a lot of the whiskey itself rather than just papered over text. And the label itself is well wrought. It's blacks and browns playing well against the background of the bourbon itself. You know, I got to say, I'm, I'm always intrigued by the design thinking process people go through with the labels in their bottles and how so many bottles over-label failing to give us a good look at what's inside or how so many labels don't account for how they will appear against the background of the color of a full bottle, as well as a background of the absence of color in just an empty bottle. But Baker's has a great look no matter the volume of the whiskey in the bottle. As to the nose of the Baker's seven-year single-barrel Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey, the nose is a foreshadowing of what's coming with this bourbon. There's a complexity here. The oak appears on stage first, but it co-stars with sweetness that hints at vanilla and caramel and toasted marshmallows, all of the sweet things we expect in a bourbon with a higher corn count like Baker's. And that 107-proof distillation also offers up a warm alcohol smell that also suggests a spiciness like cinnamon and cloves. Now, the palate is a brilliant synthesis of sweet and spice. The vanilla the nose foresaw is here, as is the caramel. And there's also a faint suggestion of honey, which I really like. And yes, the alcohol brings a great glow of cinnamon and other spices like clove or maybe a very slight touch of anise. And yeah, that oak that the bourbon has been resting in for all those seven plus years brings a smoky woodiness to it that really makes the bakers distinct. I suppose, though, that I just ordered that kind of wrong with the sweet coming first. It really is the spice that opens up the show, and the sweet enters as kind of a longer act. I got to say, the baker is one of those rich bourbons that cries out for an accompanying cigar. Now, as to the finish, this is what I think of as a warm finish, a comforting linger of the woodiness, the spice, and the faint farewell from the vanilla. It's also a finish that doesn't want to part. It wants to stay at the party as long as possible. It's a long, warm goodbye. 
So yeah, I'm a fan of the Bakers, and it's one of those bourbons I like with good friends, good cigars around a good fire late at night. And those, my friends, are my thoughts about Baker's seven-year single-barrel Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey. Now, as always, please keep in mind that the Fishing Professor Bourbon Break Reviews are not sponsored. The distillers haven't sent me any samples, damn them, nor do they influence my reviews at all, though I am always open to sponsorship, bribery, and extortion. The bourbons I review are purchased out of pocket, and my reviews are based on the keen sense of bourbon know-how developed over many years in many of this country's finest watering holes, drinking establishments, dives, pubs, honky-tonks, and back alley speakeasies. Hey, speaking of, let me give a quick shout out to Four Greenfields in Tampa. Now, there are four of these in Tampa, but way back when, when my friends and I used to go to the one on Ashley Drive over by Curtis Hickson Park, well, primarily because we had a couple of burgeoning beer connoisseurs amongst us, but Four Greenfields also has a nice selection of whiskeys, primarily Irish whiskeys, but they also have really great, nice, pleasant, relaxed atmosphere with a neighborhood pub feel. Four Green Fields was always a place to go to have a few without it becoming a raucous night, but I will admit that too often we planned for those mellow nights, but inevitably ended up really disrupting the nice neighborhood pub atmosphere with our caterwauling. So with Four Green Fields in mind, I say, for each pedal on the shamrock, this brings a wish your way. Good health, good luck, and happiness for today and every day. As always, if you have comments about this week's bourbon break, feel free to email me at sid at inventifishing.com. Now back to the water. All right, my listening crew, it is time for this week's top 10 list. And I know that I'm probably being sacrilegious by having this particular top 10 list in an episode that features an interview with an angler who has done so much to teach us about fly fishing and dry fly fishing in particular, but with the hope that I'm not disappointing Mr. Garrick too much, because frankly, I don't want to disappoint my heroes when I have the opportunity to actually meet them. But this week's top 10 list is for bait anglers. And this week you can say that I'm full of hot air because this week I want to take a look at the top 10 aerators I use for smaller bait buckets. And yes, I'm going to stick with battery operated aerators, not those bigger ones with the alligator clamps that you connect to a marine battery or that you hardwire to your boat's battery. Though lots of those are great and have a large enough GPH output for bigger bait wells. And I've seen some great DIY rigs for using aerators like the Marine Metals Fish Saver Aerator with large coolers or big barrel bait wells with marine batteries, often on carts for touting out, toting out onto piers. But I'm going to focus on the smaller aerators that you use with a bait bucket or dedicated bait system that you can pick up and tote around. So yeah, reductively, let's just say we're going to talk about portable aerators. And while there are a bunch of aerators out there that fall into this category, the truth is that Marine Metals Products is the company that produces most of the portable aerators out there. This is a great family-owned company that started back in 1959 that recognized that as popular as live bait fishing is in places like Florida, few boats back then came equipped with aerated bait wells, except for some commercial fishing vessels. Now, Marine Metals Products' history of developing various aerators over the years is interesting, and you can read the full history of their company and product development on their web pages at marinemetal.com. And I'm not going to review that history here, since really I want to focus on the top 10, not just one company, despite their clear industry-leading position. 
That, and frankly, I'm not here to shill for marine metal, only to express my confidence in the few products I include in my list this week. And I'm not sponsored by marine metal, nor have they ever provided me any of their products to work with. In fact, to be honest, no one at marine metal has the slightest idea of who the hell I am. That said, part of the reason that I wanted to do this top 10 aerator list is that I have a very bad habit of always forgetting to take an aerator with me when I go fishing. And inevitably, I get to the bait store and I have to buy a new one and new batteries more times than I care to admit. I literally have a pile of at least a dozen aerators in my garage, most of which have only been used once because I forget to grab it for a second use and end up buying yet another one. I know, too, that I have three or four others in a locker on my boat because I forget to bring them when I stop for bait when towing the boat. Often that means buying whatever aerator the bait shop happens to have for sale and unfortunately paying the price they decide to charge because, frankly, if you're standing there ready to pay for your shrimp and you have no aerator, they know you're going to pay whatever they want so you can keep your bait alive. And since keeping live bait like shrimp and crabs and finger mullet and mud minnows, greenbacks, and so on in bait buckets in the Florida heat can kill your bait pretty quickly, having an aerator is absolutely necessary. So from the pile in my garage and from all the times I've clicked on that little whirring machine that keeps my bait alive and kicking, let's take a look at my 10 favorite aerators. Okay, blowing into the list to get us going, let's go with Bass Pro Shops aerator at number 10. This is a very basic aerator. It has two speeds. It's got really easy operation. It's basically an on-off switch with two on positions for the two speeds. I like that they've molded a protector around the on-off toggle, so it's less likely that you accidentally hit the switch and turn off the aerator. It runs on a single D-cell battery. And they boast it'll run for 30 hours on a single battery. I assume that's on the lower volume setting. Also, since it lists for just under 10 bucks, it's worth the money. I really like this aerator in particular for smaller bait buckets, like the small one I use on my kayak, because its size is ideal for that. All right, at number nine, I like Frabble's Aqualife Cooler Aeration System. Now, this is an aerator designed for converting a cooler into a live well. But unlike many others designed for this purpose, the Frabble Aqualife Cooler Aeration System can run on two D-cell batteries, making it a much more portable type of aerator. Yes, you can run it on a 12-volt or 110-volt adapter. It's really designed for smaller coolers, and I think that if you used it with anything larger than, say, a standard 32-quart cooler, you wouldn't be getting the airflow through the water that you need. It's also a little pricier than many of the aerators on this list this week. comes in at around 60 bucks. All right, at number eight, let's go with Rapala's floating aerator. Now, this is a very different design than most of the other aerators on this list because rather than keeping the pump external to the water and using a hose and aeration stone, the Rapala floating aerator, as the name says, floats in the water in the bait bucket. It looks kind of like a float you'd have in your pool that you put the chlorine tabs or in a large kind of or a large kind of pool thermometer. One of the features I really like about the Rapala floating aerator is that it's water activated. So it turns itself off when you take it out, which is great because I can't tell you how many times I've accidentally left an aerator on when it wasn't in the bucket and I've just run the batteries out. 
It operates using three C-cell batteries, and it will run continuously for 18 hours. Or there's a setting that will let it run in 15-minute intervals for about 36 hours. So yeah, it turns itself on and off for half the time, so it runs twice as long. I know I haven't mentioned this with the previous aerators so far, because I don't have the information, but the Rapala floating aerator aerates about 1.5 liters per minute. Now, my one criticism of the Rapala floating aerator is that when I use it in smaller bait buckets, like a flow troll, for example, it does take up a bit of a space. It takes up some space on the surface. So I have to wrestle my hand past the aerator to get to the bait. I should note, too, that the Rapala floating aerator lists for about 30 bucks. All right, at number seven, the first of the Marine Metals aerators to make its appearance on this list. So at number seven, I've got Marine Metals products, Baby Bubbles. This is definitely one of those aerators that have that I have several of because they're priced right under 10 bucks. They're generally available at most bait stores specifically because they are what anglers want to grab when they forget their aerators rather than the $30 aerator. And they'll run on two AA batteries. So you're also not shelling out for D or C as well. And it runs for about 20 hours on those two AA's. I also like that they've covered the on-off switch in a rubber boot to protect the switch from the water and from bangs and dings. It's perfectly designed for smaller bait buckets, aerating up to three gallons very effectively. I also really appreciate that the tubing on this baby bubble is 24 inches long. I get very frustrated with shorter aerator hoses when I can't get the hose and the stone to reach the bottom of the water. The longer hose plus the compact design make baby bubbles a great aerator. All right, at number six, how about Aqua Miracle's lithium battery-powered portable aquarium air pump? Now, this is one of the few rechargeable aerators currently available, but I know we'll be seeing more soon, and I'll be talking about a few others in a bit. This aerator, though, hasn't earned the reputation in the fishing world as much as it has in the aquarium world, as it's billed as a safety backup for your aquarium for when the power cuts off. But they also identify it as for, and I quote here, outdoor fishing. I'm not sure where the indoor fishing is taking place. It also has a much higher flow rate than many of the live bait aerators, pushing out 11 to 24 gallons per hour. There are two models. One's designed for 60-gallon tanks and one for 120-gallon tanks. So it's got a lot more push than most of the other aerators on this list. But it was the rechargeable battery that originally caught my eye about the Aqua Miracle aerator. And it will run continuously for 30 hours on a full charge. And it's got a setting for periodic on and off, allowing it to run for up to 40 hours. It's also got a great flow control, which allows you to increase or decrease the flow rate as needed. Also, at, $20, at a $20 price point, it's worth not having to replace batteries on each trip. Okay, bring it up the middle. Let's go with Frabble's Aqualife Premium Portable Aerator. Now, this is a $45 aerator that runs on two D-cells, but it comes with a 12-volt adapter for the car or the boat, or you can get a 120-volt uh, adapter, but that's extra and it sells separately. The Frabble Aqualife is designed to aerate buckets, wells, and coolers up to 15 gallons. At 30 bucks, it's a very reliable aerator. One of the things that I've noticed in using this aerator is that the on-off switch is better than most. The switches on aerators can be a weak point, but Frabble's is sturdy and well-protected. Okay, at number four, how about Ingle's original two-speed battery-powered portable aerator pump? Now, I'm a big fan of all things Ingle, and their two-speed aerator is one of those things. 
This aerator uses two D-cell batteries, and it comes with a 12-volt car adapter. But keep in mind that this is not rechargeable. It's just that you can plug it into the car or the boat without having to drain the batteries, or you can use it without the batteries. I will admit, too, I haven't run my Eagle two-speed battery aerator until the batteries have died. So I know it will run for at least 13 hours, but I can't tell you how much longer. It's got great output and holds up well to the destructive properties of marine environments. I can tell you that I have at least two or three of these sitting on uh, in, the, in my pile of aerators. All right, at number three, let's go back to another great marine metals product with marine metal quiet bubbles. This is a fantastic aerator for $30. As the name says, one of the real standout features of this aerator is its whisper quiet motor. It runs on two D-cells, but will give you reliable output on those two batteries for up to 40 hours. Now, like the other marine metals aerators, it's got a booted switch to keep it protected. One of the things I really appreciate about the marine metals quiet bubbles too is that the air stone is weighted to keep it down in the water. And though I haven't talked about air stones in this list, the marine metal air stone is really great in how it dissolves and disperses the air. It's also got the longer 24-inch air hose, which again, I really appreciate. It's designed specifically for smaller bait buckets and is best with bait buckets of less than seven and a half gallons. Also, I should note that the marine metals, uh, that marine metals has done a fantastic job in building the casing for this aerator with a neoprene seal to help protect the batteries and motor from getting wet. It lists for about 28 bucks. All right, so that brings us to the runner-up position. And yes, you guessed it. I've got another Marine Metals product in the runner-up box, and that's Marine Metal Products Hush Bubbles Portable Aerator. I suppose if you wanted to easily describe the Marine Metals Products Hush Bubbles Portable Aerator, you could simply call it the little brother of the Marine Metals Quiet Bubble. It costs about five bucks less than the Quiet Bubbles, runs for about seven hours less, so about 33 hours on two D-cells. It still aerates up to a seven and a half gallon bait bucket, but at a slightly lower and slower rate. The same great waterproof switch with the boot, a great weighted glass bead air stone, and a weatherproof case. I can tell you that I have at least three or four of these as well in my garage and one or two more on my boat. In a lot of ways, they've been the default aerator for me for many years. However, that does beg the question, if the Marine Metals Products Hush Bubbles Portable Aerator has been my default, then what is the professor's absolute favorite aerator? But before we get to that $50 question, how about a quick recap of the top nine that set up this list? At number 10, Bass Pro Shops Aerator. At nine, Frabble's Aqua Life Cooler Aeration System. At eight, Rapala's Floating Aerator. At seven, Marine Metal Baby Bubbles. At six, Aqua Miracle Lithium Battery Powered Portable Aquarium Air Pump 4 Fish Tank up to 120 gallons. At five, Frabble's Aqua Life Premium Portable Aerator. At four, Ingalls Original Two Speed Battery Powered Portable Aerator Pump. At three, Marine Metals Quiet Bubbles. At two, Marine Metals Hush Bubbles Portable Aerator. And that brings us to my favorite aerator. The fact that I have a favorite aerator really shows how much I pay attention to my tackle these days. Um, you know, you would think an aerator is an aerator, but they're not. And the aerator that I knew, now use almost exclusively, and that is Ingalls Lithium Ion Rechargeable Live Bait Aerator Pump. See, I told you I'm a fan of all things Ingle. 
This is a great rechargeable aerator. In fact, it really is the best rechargeable aerator out there. If you run this aerator on the intermittent setting, it will run for about 36 hours. Run it on high and you'll get 18 hours of pumping. It charges with a standard USB cable, so it's easy to charge anywhere. Now, one of the fantastic things about the Ingle Lithium Rechargeable Live Bait Aerator Pump is that rather than using those little motors that spin, you know, the ones you used to use in third grade science class when you were learning about connectivity, circuits, and electricity, well, the Ingalls doesn't use those. It uses a unique magnetic pump mechanism, so there's no moving parts to corrode or seize up. And because of that, it's also the quietest aerator on the market. Unlike all the other aerators I've discussed on this list, which have two speeds, the Engel Lithium-Ion Rechargeable Live Bait Aerator Pump has four speed settings. It's also got a 32-inch air hose, and that alone gets my attention. It's got a great water-resistant case, and it's saltwater corrosion-resistant uh, as well. Just the best aerator out there. I should note, too, that Engel also makes an extra large version of this aerator that lists for about 70 bucks and that has almost double the airflow rate because it uses two of the magnetic pump mechanisms. It uses a hockey puck style stone for more air distribution. Now, it'll last for 48 hours on low, 36 hours on high, and 72 hours on intermittent. So think of it as the Engel Lithium Ion Rechargeable Live Bait Aerator Pump on steroids. It is a beast of an aerator. And I think that if my primary bait usage were bait that require more room to move in larger bait buckets and that needed more oxygenated water, sort of like a Threadfin Herring does, I'd definitely invest in the XL version. I should note, too, that while the Ingle Lithium-Ion Rechargeable Live Bait Aerator Pump works great in any bait bucket you're carrying, it really is optimal to pair it with Ingle's Live Bait Dry Box Coolers, which you can get in a 7.5-quart model, a 13-quart model, a 19-quart model, or a 30-quart model. Now, I have the 19-quart model, which has been fantastic on the boat and from the pier, and I just ordered the 7.5-quart version for the kayak and for when I'm walking the beach surf casting. So yeah, all in all, there is not a better aerator on the market right now than Ingle Lithium Ion Rechargeable Live Bait Aerator Pump. And when you pair that up with their dry box cooler that's rigged for this aerator, that is the best portable bait system there is on the market. Hey, I want to say too that I had hoped to include a product in this week's top 10 list that I had seen introduced last year at iCast, and that's Frabble's Recharge Deluxe Aerator, which actually won the iCast New Product Showcase Award for Best New Boat Accessory. But to be honest, I haven't been able to find one in a store anywhere or online, so I haven't been able to try one out. Now, I had assumed that this was because, as we often see, sometimes a product gets launched at iCast, but the manufacturers just haven't gotten it ready for distribution yet, which is kind of standard and it's acceptable. So I have my eyes out for one once they're available. Now, in fact, prior to doing this list, I actually reached out to the marketing folks for the Frabble Rechargeable, and they said that they just don't have a release date for it yet. Now, given the accolades it received at ICAST last year, though, I'm anticipating it to be a really solid product, and I'll take a look at it when it comes out. 
I think, too, that the introduction of the Frabble rechargeable following the release of Ingalls rechargeable signals signals a shift we're going to see in aerators to rechargeable batteries rather than disposable batteries. And I'd assume we'll see this for just about all other battery-operated equipment in the coming years as the rechargeable battery technologies become more accessible to tackle development. So that does it for this week's top 10 list. And yeah, I get it. This list blows. But I'm going to wrap it up because, frankly, I'm winded. You say yes. I say no. You say stop. And I say go, go, go. Oh, no. You say goodbye. And I say hello, hello, hello. I don't know why you say goodbye. I say hello, 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 hello. But it seems that this time you are correct and it is time to say goodbye because we have come to the end of another episode of the Fishing Professor Rodcast. I am so glad you were able to find the time to listen to this week's episode and I do hope that you will encourage all of your friends and family to listen to future episodes as well. Hey, much gratitude to Mr. John Garrick for joining me on the Rodcast this week. It really was an honor for me to meet and speak with him, and I hope that you all enjoyed our conversation as much as I did. I hope you found my thoughts about Baker's seven-year single-barrel Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey to be full of bourbony goodness. And of course, I hope you learned a thing or two about aerators. Now, before we sign off today, I do have a message for our brothers and sisters out there behind the line. The weather has turned. I say again, the weather has turned. And that just about does it for this week's episode of the Fishing Professor Rodcast. Be sure to look for next week's episode, which will drop on Wednesday of next week. And I hope that you and all the members of the listening crew continue to spread the word about the Rodcast. And of course, if you have a comment or a question about anything on this week's show, or have recommendations for future Top 10s, Bourbon Breaks interviews, or information about specific fishing-related issues, please feel free to email me at sid at inventivefishing.com or leave a reply in any of the comment sections for any of the podcast platforms you use to listen to the Rodcast. Hey, be sure to follow Inventive Fishing on Twitter and Instagram and friend us on Facebook at Inventive Fishing. And you can also check out all the great video content over on the Inventive Fishing YouTube channel, which includes great gear reviews, new product introductions, and a whole heap of other great content. Hey, like I said, I'll be back with another episode next week on Wednesday. Until then, this is Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor. Fish on! The Fishing Professor Show is copyrighted by Inventive Fishing, LLC. Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the consent from Inventive Fishing LLC is strictly prohibited. Fish on!